title is Complete Victory, as we will see tonight in chapters 11 and a summary in chapter 12 of the battles. If you remember in chapter 10, Joshua was conquering the southern territory, utilizing the fundamental military strategy of that day that carried over even still today, which is divide and conquer. We also saw in, we'll see tonight in chapter 11, the northern campaign uh, will lead to complete victory because they divided the land into north and south. They took, God directed them to take care of the southern kingdoms and wipe out those kings. And now they're moving to the north to wipe out the key military strategic kings that rule the north. Joshua's strategy was filled with God's leading. That was his secret. It was God leading him. It was God's wisdom that he relied upon. It was God's strength that allowed him to do and accomplish him and the mighty warriors of Israel. But it was God that was doing this work through Joshua and Israel's mighty men, and it wasn't them. They tried that once, and they failed miserably. And then from that point on, it appears for the remaining of the war, they learned to not go out ahead of God or absent of God to try to accomplish anything, especially when it came to fighting the enemy. Joshua's success was that the fact that he was wholly followed after the Lord his God. We see, and we come up in here to Joshua 14, 8, we see that he gives God all the credit and success Because he wholly followed him. He didn't follow multiple people. He didn't follow multiple things and strategies or organizations. He followed the Lord. And so Joshua was one who had a passion, a passion for God and followed hard after God. He did not first lean on his own understanding He didn't lean on organizations or structures to get him to success, to move up and to move on in life, to get what he wants to get. No, he wasn't even one of those people who took the laissez-faire approach with just let it, let's just go with the flow kind of a thing. Whatever happens, happens, you know, everything works out for the good, you know. And no. To have complete victory, he had to rely on God, and he also had to rely on God's wisdom to give him the strategy to do what God's called him to do. He had to do his part. Couldn't sit back. It's like those saying, God will give me a job. Let me sit here and be a potato couch kind of a thing and watch TV and do nothing, but God will give me a job. He didn't do that. He did the hard work that God was directing him to do in the people. In chapter 10, we learn that when we make agreements with the enemy, expect to end up paying a price and having to defend them in order to protect yourself. And that's what happened with the Hivites, the Yebenites, that that group out of the Gemenites that came and, and, and had a peace treaty he ended up having to defend them because the other kings ended up coming against them because they were the easier target to kind of 
chip away on these relationships that were forming, and they did not want anyone else to do that. But through that, a, a vow, because Joshua didn't seek God first on that, and the leaders didn't first seek God on that, they formed a vow which ended up costing them, even though God was with them, they brought them through that. And this is why God's people must remain separate from the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 14 through 18 warns us, do not form an alliance with non-believers. Don't get married to a non-believer. Do not get into business or don't form alliances with non-believers. You'll end up having to cover for them for their, they walk in darkness and go off astray. You'll end up getting caught up into those kinds of things. We wonder whether Paul had Joshua in mind when he wrote in 2 Timothy 2.4 that no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him, God, who enlisted him as a soldier. How important it is that we are alliances with God and God alone and with God's people. We also see a wonderful teaching point regarding the Gibeonites. Called to Joshua for help in Joshua 10, verses 6 and 7. And in spite of their paganism and their, their ways of life, these Gibeonites knew that they were headed for destruction. They knew that God had a plan with Israel to wipe all of these kings out and all the nations, all the nations and the tribes within that land. And they understood that their destruction because they did not follow that God. And so because of that, they looked to Joshua. Joshua meaning Jehovah is Savior and attained from him a promise of protection, a vow to keep them alive. Oh, that lost sinners would realize their destruction because they do not follow Jesus and that they would turn to Jesus Christ by faith and be protected to be saved. The Gibeonites believed that Joshua's promise and called him on for the help when that things got difficult in their lives, when these, king, these kings who they used to be aligned with now turned on them because they vowed and joined forces with Israel. And when that help was needed, he by faith he believed Joshua would help. And God did use Joshua to help them. Joshua didn't even blink an eye. He went and brought the mighty men, and immediately overnight, he, they did a force march to go up and do a surprise attack and take over those kings. And that's what God's people need to do when they find themselves facing the battles of life. Be like the Gibeonites who turned to hold their whole burden over to Joshua and trusted him to keep his word, and he did. So we learn Joshua's success in, in this attack was based on three factors. He had success because the fact that, one, he believed in the divine promise in verse 8 of chapter 10. He believed God's word. That's where it starts. Do you want victory over the giants and the enemies that come against you, the darkness of principalities and darkness of this world? Then you must believe God's promises in his word. If not, then they will have a field day with your mind. They'll have a field day with your life. And they will use other people against you who are very prone and easy to move because they love darkness. And they will be used by them to come against you. 
So you must come back to the, the word of God and understand and believe the promises of God. That was his first strength and strategy or uh, pillar of strength to be able to have complete victory. The second part that we saw in chapter 10 was not only the fact that they believed in the divine promise, but they also used sound strategy that God led them to use, the wisdom of God, the surprise attacks, the ambush, the divine encounter, all these things that they used because God showed them the wisdom of how to take care of the enemy. And it was always different approaches to deal with the issue at hand. And thirdly, there was a calling on the Lord in prayer. He sought after the Lord in verses 10 through 15 in chapter 10, nonstop asking God and asking God constantly of direction to what he needed to do. From battle to battle to battle, situation to situation to situation, they're constantly seeking after God. That is why Joshua and the Israelites were successful in taking care of the southern kingdoms. And we will see that same is true in the northern kingdoms here this evening. But remember in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. When God is calling you to do something, it will take faith. If it doesn't take faith, it's not of God. We also see Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so how important it is that we continue to listen and hear the word of God because it strengthens your faith to do the things that God's going to call you to do. Whenever we believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God, we act by faith and can expect God's help in the situations you find yourself in. But remember, faith apart from works is dead. And Joshua proved his faith by using wise strategy and doing the hard work by going to war against the enemy that God said he needed to do. Even when it didn't even look like it's possible. We also see in 1 John 5, 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What overcomes the enemy of this world in your life? You want victory? It's by faith. That is how we have victory and complete victory, one battle at a time. So here in Joshua 11, verses 1 through 5, follow along. And it came to pass when Jebin, king of Hezor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, the king of Shemaron, the king of Akshaf, and to the kings uh, who were from the north in the mountains in the plain south of Chinneroth, and the low land in the heights of Dor on the west, and the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their enemies with them, as many people as the sand that is in the sea, on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the water of Miram and fight against Israel. So we interesting when we see in these first five verses, it came to pass. 
So there was a little bit of time and adjustments of going from regrouping and fighting the south and now going to the north. We see that after hearing Israel's total quest and just conquering of the south, it made those kings very nervous and form an alliance, a confederation as well, to come against Israel. And these northern kings came together to defeat Israel, and the huge army was so large and so massive, it was even harder than the south. It was harder than Ai. It was harder than Jericho. It was the largest and the biggest of the armies gathering together, more than the sand of the seashore. Very large, very much. I mean, there's an emphasis in the Greek there that, that is, it is huge how big the massiveness of the armies coming together in confederation against Israel. But the huge army assembled together reflects an attitude that they believed because of their masses and because of their horses and because of their chariots that we would refer to as tanks today. They had everything that needed for best to win the war. But did it? No. No weapon can be formed against God's people that was going to prosper and win. See, all of this was prompted by the northern kings that heard. They didn't have to see as that. They, they heard regarding Israel's success and victory. They were just winning and going against. They were just amazed at what was going on. And they knew if they didn't, they were going to be the next target. They understood this. And when we are awakened... When God awakened Joshua and awakened his people to do these hard things, to do what God's called them, when that happens, the devil is awakened as well. And you will have the enemy coming against you when you are out there doing what God's awakened you to do. Expect spiritual warfare to come against you. It's only a matter of time. And the area noted here, Chinneroth, means harp. It's this word appears in the scripture three times, but many, many times of this heart-shaped area called the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. We see that this is the area that was, they were looking at at one. But there's two things indicate that now Israel faced challenges they had never faced before. First, the size of the enemy of the army was much larger than they've ever faced before. They had so many people, there's just multitude, but they also, they now are going to meet up against technology. The technology is now against them. What technology did they have? Horses and chariots. The Israelites had no horses, and they never had chariots. And all of the wars and all the fighting of all of the time, they never had any of that. God didn't need to have these technology to beat the enemy. But the enemy had it. It put them at great strength from a human perspective. But the challenges brought to Israel seemed to increase every time they went to war. When they went to Jericho, then it became Ai. From Ai was down to the south. Now it's the north. And as they progressed, the enemy got larger. It got more difficult. It got more challenging. Why is that? Why did God choose 
that method of raising up and building up the nation of Israel in the war. Because he knew they needed to build their faith up. They needed to understand, they needed to learn to battle through the small battles and be faithful in the small things before the bigger things would come. They couldn't take on the Anakins that we see, the, the, these giants. If that was the very first battle, you don't have to take on the very biggest thing that's going on in your life. Start with the small things and let God work through this. Why he doesn't show you some of the bigger things and challenges in your life until after a period of time. Because he wants to build your faith up to be able to handle those kinds of situations. So many times as a Christian we think, oh, I've been a Christian for a while. I shouldn't have any more challenges and any more spiritual warfare. It should be pretty easy sailing, isn't it? No, that you don't understand the scriptures. <laughs> You're just getting started. The best time is when you first get saved. It's just nothing but just joy and praise, and you're willing to tell everyone about Jesus. And then the enemy comes, one by one. And they just seem to be get bigger and heavier and more difficult as the enemy come against you. Why? Because God is building up your faith to do great things for him. Hello? <laughs> yeah, I know that's sort of sobering for some. But if you've been in the ministry, if you've been in walking for Jesus and doing, and I'm literally doing things for Jesus, not just sitting around in church, but actually doing something for God, then you understand what I'm talking about. And this is what God had to do in, in the, the Israelites' life. We often find that the challenges facing us in our Christian lives increase every, each step. But God uses each previous victory as a springboard for us to then go on to something even bigger that we will face in the future, whatever that may be. But they came, these enemies, these kings, the northern part, camped together, formed an alliance. Remember, they used to have all these tribal warfares. Now they're gaming together because it's a common enemy, and that's Israel. And they formed in a place by the, the scripture refers to as the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Do you know where the waters of Miram is? Well, we know that these waters of Miram is located in the valley of Megiddo. We see how the, this event pictures the prophecy that we see in Revelation. This massive army is going to form here in the waters of Miram, or the valley of Megiddo, and they're going to come against Joshua, just as we will see in Revelation when the enemies will come against Jesus Christ and the valley of Megiddo as well. Verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So here you are, you hear this massive army, this huge army kind of come against you and you just fought. You just fought and, and tired and exhausted fighting all these kings in the south. Now you're going to go fight something bigger? I'm, I'm exhausted. How is this going to happen? And God says, great, I've got you exactly where you need to be. Completely dependent upon me. To draw my strength to my wisdom. 
Don't lean on your warfare experience to now say, I know how to fight a war. Let me go against the South. He makes it even bigger so you are at the end of yourself and all your resources and all your knowledge and all your strength and your physical strength and mental strength. He'll take you to the very end of yourself so you will not rely upon you or anybody else but God himself. And we see that he says, do not be afraid. Why? Because this attack was new. It was more severe in the, than the previous challenges that they've had to face. And Joshua needed a fresh confirmation of God's promise in his life. That's why he kept seeking after God to continue to be refreshed by God, to challenge after challenge, situation after situation. And the Lord was faithful to bring that encouragement to him. And he says, do not be afraid. That's one thing. That's great. God, thank you for telling me I, I don't need to be afraid. Why? <laughs> you know, I see a giant in front of me. And he gives him the reason. Because I've already gone before you. You're going to take them all out. And not only are you going to take them out by tomorrow, he even gives you the time, how quickly it's going to happen. You're literally going to take them out tomorrow by this time. You're going to deliver them all, slain before Israel. But then don't forget, don't let them come back against you. This technology, make sure you take out their horses. Make sure they're not functional. Hamstring them. And those chariots, those tanks, just burn them. Get rid of them. Most people say, hey, this is war. Why can't we get their horses and get their chariots and we can now have this capability ourselves? That's leaning on your own understanding, isn't it? It makes logical sense, doesn't it? But that's not how God works. He didn't want them to, the Israelites to, you know, to turn from God and trusting in him and his, how he was going to do the battle and then turn around and get the tools of the enemy and then take the tools of the enemy to use it against. You don't take the enemy's technology and then turn around and twist it and somehow think you're going to now achieve something through the enemy's tools of technology and not trust God to do the work? Same thing in the ministry. Do we trust what God's word says that he will build his church? Or do we rely now on technology to think we're going to know what's best and we're going to build God's church through technology and all these fancy things and capabilities? I, I lean on God. <laughs> I trust in God that's going to do the work in people's lives. Yes, technology's fine to to bring some, some clarity and think, but, but don't rely upon the technology. He, he relies upon you and the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit working through you to talk to people and to evangelize with your words. That's how he expects us to do it, to build relationships and to share the gospel. And so here they are. He didn't want them to use this technology. So in verse 7, so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom. And they attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook of Mis Misrephoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. 
They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. And he hand-strung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. I look at those, these verses 7 through 9 and I see Joshua, I mean, fought with boldness. He fought with strategy. He literally trusted in God. They boldly went in there, didn't second guess. God said to do it. He didn't second guess God. I don't think I can do this. I don't think we should do this. God said to do it. God said he, was going, he had it. Do not be afraid. I'm going to take care of it. You need to trust God's word. You need to move forward even when you don't even think you can. And it's by faith. And he took them out by an unexpected ambush. It's the strategy that God gave them to do. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He didn't change the plan. God gave him the plan. He did the plan. So Joshua fought with obedience. He fought with boldness. He fought with strategy. He fought with obedience. Doing exactly what God told him to do. Even destroying the Canaanite weapons. And this is an important lesson. Many Christians do not hesitate to use the tools of spiritual enemy. See, God wants to work at a whole different level than what the world does. God works at a whole different way in a battle. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We have to remind ourselves that God has his own ways. How do we know that? Well, we study the word of God. We listen to the word of God. We listen to the spirit of God teaching us through the word of God what to do and not to do. He has ways of speaking to us by his word, by his spirit, to tell us how and what we need to do and how to do it. He opens doors and closes doors. He can take anyone in any leadership position and change and move his head and direction and get him to do whatever or her to do whatever he wants them to do. And we will see that here tonight as well. We are not to trust in these things. We see it clearly in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We will not take our eyes off of God to do what he's called us to do. Anywhere in ministry, anywhere in our life, we must keep our eyes on God and not on the technology or other things of this world. See, Joshua fought with passion. He fought with commitment, obedience. He did not let up until he accomplished as much as he could according to what the Lord told him to do. Even if he was exhausted, even if he thought he couldn't take another moment, another day, another fight, another battle, he did it until it was accomplished. He was faithful. Joshua was a very faithful man. In verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time, took Hazor, it's a place, struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. That was the central place, the central military hub was Hazor. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings 
Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword, and he literally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. There's consistency. God told Moses, Moses told Joshua, Joshua now finds himself being the one that needed to implement it. And he had to follow through completely. See, the staggering completeness of the destruction in human terms was tremendous. Shows how the completeness of God's judgment had to be complete. Israel's obedience to having that God using them as that judgment tool to bring complete judgment upon them because of the depravity of the Canaanites. They were very depraved. In verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land. Now they have all the land, north and south. The mountain country, all the south, and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Helak and the and the ascent of Assir, even as far as Baal Gad of the Valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down, and killed them. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle and that they might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So in the description of the northern campaign, the war in the northern part of Israel. We see that this campaign, we see the war against them according to Caleb's age. We know that it was about a seven-year military operation that took place. How do we know that? Israel's failure at Kadesh Barnea in Deuteronomy 2.14 is where we can start our calculation of how old Caleb is. We see Caleb was 40 years old at that point, and then Joshua 14.7 references this, to their crossing of the Jordan was about 38 years. He was 85 when the conquest was over that we see in verse 10. So when we do the, the calculation, there was about a seven-year opera military operation for this all to take place. I ponder on that a little bit, only as not from a factual perspective, but I thought of it another perspective. Remember... The three, two and a half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan, they had to leave home, their families, for a long time. It wasn't quick wars. 
They had to leave and be on the west side because they were promised that they would conquer all of the, the promised land before they go back to be able to have peace with their families on the east side of the Jordan. That was a long war. Battle after battle, this was not an easy thing. This means Joshua would spend seven years devoted to the campaign, declaring out the enemy and taking control of the territory. It must have been a tremendous achievement for a man like Caleb. Remember, Joshua and Caleb are the two that came back after spying 40 years prior, 40 plus years prior. And said, yes, God can, will give us this promised land. It was the other ones that said no. And by, by unbelief, they didn't go. But here's a man that said, we could have that land. We can, that's God's land, and we can do it. Here now, God uses both Joshua and Caleb, the only two left from that group, to be able to actually see the complete victory that God promised they would have. What a, it must have been amazing. If you've ever been in the military and you've accomplished something, and you're standing there reflecting of all that had to be accomplished. It must have been a tremendous feeling for Caleb at that age of 85 to see the finally the conquest, the complete victory that God promised him many years prior, but they had unbelief in doing it. But they had belief. Him and Josh were the only ones that had the belief, and they got to see that reward. But notice there in those verses that for it was the Lord to harden their hearts. They hard, God actually hardened the enemy's hearts. We're told that the judgment on the Canaanites was accomplished when God hardened their hearts against Israel. Why would God harden the hearts of the people, the enemy against Israel? What does that mean? It means that the hardening of men's hearts is when God gives man up to the sin that's in their heart. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. When your heart is evil and God, the Hivites changed they chose to go and to, to, for, to, for, for protection and to, for safety and to be, save their lives. They were willing to go to the God of Israel. But the rest of them, their hearts were so hardened that God said, Okay, I'm going to let you over to your hardened heart. And that led to their destruction. But as the Lord had commanded Moses, we need not think that God poured out some particular judgment that was unfair to the Canaanites. He dealt with their hearts the same way he deals with all man's hearts. But God's grace either hardens the heart or it softens the heart. But this grace is the same. He pours out his grace on all people, having desired that no one would perish. But God's grace and people, you were shocked when you share the gospel and God's grace of mercy that they just they could be saved and be forgiven. And it hardens their heart when you share the grace of God with them. Nothing new. 
verse 21, and at that, at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anib, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. And none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod. So even after the kings, they still had to go be challenged to take on the giants. You know Goliath. We see that in 1 Samuel. God, God, Goliath was somewhere between 9 feet 9 inches to 12 feet 6 inches. They were huge. Everyone feared. But not David. Not Joshua. Not the men of Israel. Why? Because their faith was in God. Not the size of their enemy doesn't stop them. It was God. Their God was much bigger than the enemy. And so the fear of the Anakim, the descendants of Achan, or Anak, the tribe of especially large and strong people did not change the hearts of God's people who live by faith. But if they lived by sight, they would have never went after them. They would never even have made it as far as they had. Because if you go by sight in this life that you walk, if you do it by sight, you will fail. But if you walk by faith, and not by sight. Changes everything. When you walk in the spirit and truth, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's why we must walk by faith. We see the Anakim first in Genesis 6-4. We see that this giant Goliath that we know so well comes from the city of Gath. It's 500 years later in 1 Samuel 17, 4, pops into the, into the, in the picture. But we must understand something as a spirit-filled life. When we were a person who is spirit-filled, when you say, Lord, baptize me in the Spirit, use me, Lord, for your purpose. Just remember, all hell will break loose on you. You will have the most intense spiritual warfare that will come against you when you cry out to the Lord and say, fill me with your Spirit and use me, Lord, in your purpose. Just know that. You're in good company. But we live by faith. We do not live by fear. You become aware of how, that you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and, and powers in high places that is said in Ephesians 6.12. You don't fight against people. You don't struggle with people. You, don't realize, you realize it's just principalities and darkness and powers are trying to manipulate and, and cause problems and divisions and things. And you recognize it. So you don't fight against the people. You just recognize where it comes from. And it's a spiritual battle. And you just take it to the Lord and you pray. And you seek after the Lord to strengthen you and, and fight and in prayer against these powers that come against you. It's causing disunity and causing problems. You must go to prayer. You must go to God. You must let him fight your battles. Turn that whole burden over to him. 
not, you're going to get entangled with those things and destruction will happen. And you no longer blame people. But it said, see the forces manipulating and dominating the people and situation at hand. And even though we fight against what appears to be giants, there's great news, Joshua says here in verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Where's this? This is the beautiful thing when you have complete victory. You can have rest. When there's complete victory, you can have rest. And that's exactly what here happened. It brings us a whole to a whole other section as we lead into, uh, especially after chapter 12, verses 13 and uh, up to 21. We're going to see a whole other section here that talks about the rest and the things here. But he's going to completely wrap it up here by saying he got the whole land. He's, it's not the complete every inch of the land, but the main areas of the north and south. Now the people can be now populated by tribes to the lands that they're assigned for them to completely take control over their land that they have to live a life in rest. But they still have wars. They still have battles that they still have to go through these small town and through villages. Not the whole thing as a whole, but now all that military strength is gone. Now they're able to come in and populate and as a whole. But the end of this phase of conquest that needed to happen was complete. The greater in, invasion and vision of the tribes now can, that cooperated with God, now the people by tribe need to learn what happened in the big picture and now take it to their tribe and the land that they're going to have and make sure they completely live within all of the land that God had promised them. They still had work to do, but they have an example. They see how it was played out. They see how Joshua led. Now the leaders of those tribes had to do the same thing. In the same sense, Jesus had already defeated the enemy and conquered the land. But he also calls us into battle to gain what is ours. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is, comes against us, 1 John 4, 4. We, like Joshua, can take the whole land as we swing the sword of the word of God down our helmet of salvation and employ the shield of faith that we see in the armor of God that God has given us in Ephesians 6. And we can go and possess the land that God has given us. And we can find rest in Jesus as well. They found rest in God doing that work that he did. We too, Jesus, won the complete victory for you and for me. When he cried, it is finished. There on that cross we see in John chapter 19 verse 30. The work is done. The war is won. And we have the rest that we have in Jesus because of what our greater than Joshua did for us. Our Savior took and brought us complete victory in him. 
The question is, do you rest in the finished work of Jesus? Or do you have this religious mentality that you have to work your way to heaven? You must find the rest in the finished work of Jesus. Or you won't find rest. In chapter 12, this is just a summary. We see that these kings of the land, verse 1, whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river of Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. We also see in verse 2 and 3 there were two kings that were conquered, if you remember, uh, is a reminder to what they conquered on the east side before they moved to the west side. They conquered there in verse 2 the king of Sion, king of the Amorites. We see there in verses 4 through 5 the king of Og, the king of Bashan. They conquered on the eastern side. So there are two kings they had to battle before. They could have those two and a half tribes settle there before they went to the promised land to take on the rest of the kings. And if you remember, Og, king of Bashan, was a very powerful king. He was one of the giants. He came from Anakin. We see in verse 6, now the eastern lands are deeded to the tribes, of course, of Reuben and Gad and the half a tribe of Manasseh. And it's uh, these tribes that are settled there and these two kings that had to be conquered on the eastern side of the river established that land. They should not have made that decision, but it was granted and allowed by God or through Moses to allow them to do that. But later on, we will see they're just sitting ducks against the enemy. They were almost there. But they didn't, by faith, they didn't want to go in completely. Verses 7 through 8, we see these kings of the north of the country, which Joshua, now we see the kings that Joshua defeated. The first two were Moses is what was the leader to accomplish and to lead to war and to accomplish and take those two kings out. That was Moses' leadership. Now the rest of them that we see of 31 kings that they had to take out were all based on the leadership of Joshua that God used. And we see that in verses through the rest of this chapter that these kings of the country of Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan on the west. And we see them going through all the different tribes all the way until you get verse 9. And we see a whole list of all those kings. Again, at the very end in verse 24, you see the actual all the kings were 31. But in also the two on the other, the other side giving us the 33 kings that they had to conquer. We see the fact that on the first, the, uh, the, the northern, um, the 15 kings on, on, the, on, the, on the, the southern part of that kingdom that they conquered, and then when they went to the south, it was 16 kings they had to take out. And that was how many kings in each of those confederations that they had to take out. Then here, as we take a look at the king of Jericho here that is mentioned here in verse 9, these descriptions are also important because they make it clear that this, this, this has really happened. These are real kings, real territories, real people going to real wars to take over what God has called them to do. This was not just some, some 
happy place in, in, in once upon a time stories. These are, this really happened in historically in the nation of Israel and the, what we call Israel in the land of Israel today. And it also, all these kings, these 31 plus the other two, was also a very big reminder of Israel that they will for, for never forget the great things that God did in and through their lives when they were obedient and faithful to what God has called them to do. And I say that point as a, as a, as a summary kind of a thing for you and I because the principalities and powers that were in that land that came against God's people were defeated by God using God's people. And it's true today for you and I. There's principalities and powers in this land. But God is going to use us to be that salt and light. To lead people to him. He is going to have a day where he will take us out, his bride, out of here. And when he comes back, he's going to rule and reign and we will be with him. He will have complete victory. It's only a matter of time. Soon and very soon. So the question is, do we live like we have complete victory in Jesus Christ for our lives, but also ultimately of this land? Do you believe God's word? And if you believe it, you must live it. Your decisions and how you live have to be in line with what the God, God's word says. There's no doubt the land belonged to Israel. Because God said it was. But now the individual tribes still had to possess their own area that God called them to. Their work is not finished. We have been given complete victory, but we now have to possess the things that God has called us to do for him. What is God calling you to do for him? What is he calling you to do? And will you be willing to do it by faith, even with all the principalities and powers that's going to come against you when you make the decision to live for him? He's with you. Now, going on in next week, Lord willing, we will turn to the actual assigning of the land and the tribes. Again, chapters 13 through 21, discover the, the spiritual truths through those, those chapters to learn and apply as we claim our spiritual inheritance of Jesus Christ. They too had to apply and to obtain the inheritance that God gave them, and that's the land that they will be given. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you again, Lord, for allowing us to be able to come to hear your word. Lord, I pray you'll use your word to build our faith, to do the things you're calling us to do, Lord. Put those desires in our heart. May we be patient and we watch to see 
how you open doors and allow that in your timing and your way. May us not force things, Lord. May we just watch your spirit move and that we just recognize, Lord, you want us to be part of what you're doing. We want to be part of that. We don't want to go against you. We don't want to be ahead of you. And we certainly don't want to linger behind. Maybe we'll be faithful, willing vessels with ears to hear. <laughs> Faith to do. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.